Hello and welcome to Roy's Cast, the official podcast of the Ridings of Yorkshire Society. We are your hosts, Johnny Farley and Sam Wright. Today, we've got our first episode on an archaeological topic, so I'm quite excited. And we're here with Peter Connolly from HFA. Peter, how are you? Good morning. Yeah, I'm, I'm very well, thank you. Great. Thank you for coming on. Uh, it's been a long time coming, but I'm glad we've, we've got to it. Uh, Peter, to start us off, tell us a bit about yourself and about HFA. Okay. Well, hi, Johnny. Hi, Sam. How are you both doing? Um, so, I am the archaeology manager for Humberfield Archaeology. Humberfield Archaeology is part of Hull City Council. And we've been part of Hull City Council since there has been a Hull City Council, sort of um, through local government reorganisation in the mid-90s. Um, and before that, we were part of the, the wider Humberside um, government region. Um, and so there has been a, a professional archaeological service based in Hull, um, well, since the 80s. Um, and we do client-led archaeology mostly client-led archaeology, so we're self-funded um, small department within Hull City Council. Um, across, we do the work across Hull and the East Riding, North Lincolnshire, North East Lincolnshire, sort of the Humber region. Um, anywhere within sort of an hour's travel of Hull, we cover that area, so we do a lot of client-led archaeology. Um, and that sort of professional services archaeology is something that has been um, a core part of my own career. I graduated um, from the University of Liverpool, so on the other coast of the country, um, a long, long time ago, shall we say, um, in, a, in a galaxy far, far away. And um, yeah, I've been working in professional services archaeology for, dare I say it, um, about 33 years, something like that. Um, and my career spans a lot of the, um, the north of England, as you can both tell um, I'm a Scotsman but um, I've spent most of my career working in the north of England so in Liverpool, Manchester um, and um, York and, and now it's slow migration from west to east I find myself on the east coast. I think this this is a question that comes purely from a place of, of ignorance as a maritime historian rather than archaeologist and I'll start with the questions here because I'll let Johnny go to town with all the sort of archaeological <laughs> questions later but I found HFA and the number field archaeology fascinating because of this sort of commercial archaeology and, and what what you guys actually do on the ground because yeah. it's not something that I'd as I said purely from ignorance not considered was part of yeah. an archaeologist job yeah so I don't know if you could just talk a bit about what what that commercial archaeology job is and what HFA specializes in doing around particularly when like building work and things are okay. going on in Hull yeah yeah I'd be more than happy to do that well it's funny this is something that happens all over the UK um, so it's not just you know peculiar to Hull and in the East Riding. Um, archaeology is a consideration within the planning frameworks, the national policy and planning frameworks. Um, consider heritage assets or archaeological assets. So archaeology, first and foremost, we need to realise that archaeology is a finite historical resource. You know, when you dig up archaeology, you take it away, you destroy it. Um, and which means that you can never put it back. You can never put archaeology back in exactly the same way that you, you took it out of the ground. So the first realisation that any digging process is destruction. And it can be careful destruction by an archaeologist who's recording everything in minutiae, so taking photographs, um, making notes, um, using pro forma recording sheets about the archaeology that comes out of the ground, and that can be 
from anything as mundane as a stake hole, but that stake hole could be thousands of years old, all the way up to, say, um, a fancy chariot burial. Um, that is all destruction. So realising that, that finite resource, you know, if you remove something from the Neolithic that is 5,000 years old, you're never going to be able to put it back. So anything that may disturb archaeology um, has to be considered as part of the, the planning process. So all local authorities um, have um, an archaeology advisory service. So covering Hull and the East Riding is the Humber Archaeological Partnership. And they have a group of staff who deal with the planning applications. So when a planning application comes in, it will go to various departments. That could be um, a floods team, um, environmental, and so on and so forth. Um, and one of those are the, the group that deal with planning applications that may affect archaeology. Now, the knowledge about a site can come from past archaeological digs, historical research, um, chance finds, metal detecting finds, all the information that you could think that we have about the past is brought together in what is called um, an an, a historic environment record. So an HER, I'm not going to say historic environment record over and over again because I'll undoubtedly just stumble upon myself. So HER, every local authority has an HER. And um, that is the knowledge of the archaeology um, for the region. And so when a planning application comes in, that could be um, a, a new housing estate, that could be a new school, it could be um, a, a, a new piece of um, industrial building, that could be a road, it could be a, um, a new um, rail framework, it could be anything, all the way up to big, large-scale um, destruction of landscapes through um, quarrying. So all those things are considered with about their impact on that finite archaeological resource, what we know about the land. And we know that you know Britain's been heavily populated for um, thousands of years. So there's some sites that then require further archaeological work. That could be the fact that there's very little known about that site. So the local planning authority, through the archaeological advisors, may ask for what's called a desk-based assessment. So the desk-based assessment is, is basically asking somebody, getting somebody, to bring all that knowledge together so the land itself can be assessed. And then if that still doesn't clear up what is known about the site, so you know, absence of evidence isn't always evidence of absence, um, they could lead to a geophysical survey and then evaluation by digging and then full excavation. So anything that destroys would be classified as preservation by understanding. We're digging it up, so we're recovering that knowledge. Those transmissions from the past, if you think about the fact that, say, something that's happened in the Neolithic and the Bronze Age um, um, that has been buried is a transmission left by those people in the past, and we are the receivers of that information. So we receive that information and try to recover as much of that information as possible, trying to make sure that it is not garbled information. So that would be preservation by understanding. There is another requirement which could be preservation in situ. So another piece of advice could be that there's sensitive archaeology in there. It's, it's a finite resource. If we don't have to destroy it, 
let's not destroy it. So advice going to a commercial client, that could be a quarry company, that could be um, National Highways, that could be Siemens, you know, if they're if they're putting up um, a new plant for wind turbine manufacturing or even wind turbine fields on land or offshore, um, it could be, right, that zone there will preserve that in situ, but these other areas aren't as sensitive, so there might be no further archaeological requirement or more archaeological work. That's what we do. I was going to say, that's what we do in a nutshell, but that's probably quite a long monologue. Yeah, um, so part of what we would like to, well, I say we, I already know this about HFA, um, but what we think the listeners would like to know about HFA is what sort of projects have been going on recently in in Hull itself or around Hull that obviously you can talk about because I know that there are sites that you can't publicly discuss and things like that. Um, but what are some recent projects that have gone on? Well, we, we cover a huge range of, of, of work in the area. And we do, as I've said, everything from an evaluation where we might actually spend um, a week on site or, or two weeks on site and find very little, if not nothing. Now, again, we have to report on that. Um, and that's interesting information, even though there's nothing there. We can, you know, in some sites we might turn around and say, it has been fields for thousands of years. Um, that gives you an idea about how that landscape has been used across that length of time. Um, and then we could be doing work on a, a quarry site. So we have been doing work for um, Breeding Group um, on a quarry at North Cave. And within that landscape, and we've been working within that landscape for a long time, um, you have Iron Age archaeology, Roman archaeology, Anglo-Saxon archaeology, um, Bronze Age. We've just um, finished doing a watching brief out there earlier in the summer. Um, and we recovered um, a small group of probably late Neolithic early Bronze Age, so around about 2,500 BC burials. Um, um, and um, we've got some artefacts, pottery, that, yeah, that gives the date. We've not scientifically dated them, so but we've got um, a good selection of diagnostic pottery that put this group of burials into that phase. And that's part of the story because, you know, we thought, right, okay, we've got a, a, an amazing little group of um, late Neolithic early Bronze Age burials. But they are buried on the north side of a paleo channel, so an old river channel, um, just off the um, the western escarpment of the Yorkshire Wolds. So it's the the burial group is interesting in its own right, but then when you start to think about how, because the dead don't bury themselves, um, it's why are they where they are? You know, this connection to water, this connection to that part of the landscape how it would have been sighted, um, uh, would there be earthen mounds over these, so uh, like barrows, but those have been lost to time because they've been ploughed out. All that information, we start to build up that picture. So that was a lovely um, recent little project which starts to fit into the wider jigsaw of, say, late Neolithic, early Bronze Age landscape use um, in that part of East Yorkshire. And then um, we've, uh, we've done a piece of work in Beverly um, and recovered um, a lovely sequence of pottery that, that unites to Beverly's pottery and tile manufactory um, from the medieval period. Um, and then more recently in Hull itself, we've been doing a, a, a very large 
community engagement public benefit project on the site of the South Blockhouse um, and the South Blockhouse itself, although it's it's a it was a site that was demolished in the 1860s. Um, we um, dug down to the top of the blockhouse and we spent um, the summer of 2022 investigating it. Um, but as part of getting the people of Hull involved in their archaeology, and the site itself dates to the reign of Henry VIII. Yeah, um, just before we get get too dug into the blockhouse, as, <laughs> as you say, um, it, I thought an interesting point is the longevity of some of these projects because that North Cave Quarry was um, the first archaeology job I ever had in 2015 yeah. for a summer during university was there. And they'd already, you'd already been there for quite a few years at that point. Yeah. So I think that's just, a, it's an interesting thing to sort of uh, not really discuss, but notice is the, how long some of these things last. Yeah, and, and, and that part of the North Cave landscape, so it's situated um, immediately to the west of um, North Cave itself, is packed with archaeology. So there were digs on part of that landscape in the early 70s, and there was work in the 80s, and then we've been on site since the early 2000s because quarry extraction you know it takes a piece of land piece by piece by piece and um, through permissions and then if that's going to destroy any of this finite resource this archaeology that archaeology has to be dealt with as well so you only get the opportunity to dig it when the next permission or when the next piece of quarry extension is going to happen and of course the the, the majority of that archaeology only sits in the upper meter two meters of that um, large volume of um, gravel and sand. So we then are parked, so to speak, until the next piece of land needs to be quarried away. And that, that brings me on to a question that I, that I had for you um, about sort of the depth that, that, you, that you did. Because I know there's, it was always told to me that Hull's archaeology is quite shallow because of the, the nature of, of the ground there. So I mean, what is Hull like to dig in? Because it's quite, it's quite a heavily concentrated and densely built upon set of land. So how, what's the depth sort of for archaeology? In yeah, that's a, it's a really interesting question. I mean, first of all, like anybody, like I'd like to have a, a quiet chat to anybody who told you that Hull's archaeology is quite shallow because it couldn't be further from the truth. And so, it, it, you know, you, Chinese sort of whispers with these kinds of things. So in Hull city centre, in the old town, because there has been people groups of people um, occupying that space for hundreds of years, living on top of each other and living on top of the remains of the previous generations. And because the area around the the river hull itself and the, the, the head of the, the hull as it, as it comes into the Humber estuary, so that confluence is very wet, so the landscape, the buried landscape is very wet, there's over two metres of archaeology. Um, and in some places, even greater. You know, the same can be said for places like York, where I've worked, where there is upwards of five, six, seven metres of archaeology. Same in places like Chester and London, these places where, say, there's a Roman fortress, a Roman town, and then you've got, you've got Saxon occupation on top of it, and so on and so forth. Think of, you know, you can have these things called tell sites out in the Near East. These are huge mounds of just man-made detritus, you know, rubbish, people just sitting on top of that. And so the same is here in Hull. So, you know, there's there's over two metres of archaeology in Hull City Centre and some of it amazingly well preserved because of the waterlogging. Get out into the rural landscape 
um, it becomes relatively shallow because people can move around. You know, it's not to say, you know, in Beverly, you've got over a metre of archaeology and some places, you know, upwards of two metres of archaeology, uh, again, because it's a densely occupied medieval town. But with most of the rural archaeology, scrape off the topsoil. Topsoil tends to be between 30 and 50 centimetres deep. You come to the top of geology and cut into that geology as the archaeology. And therefore, the archaeology is as deep as the thing that has been cut into the ground. So that could be from a few centimetres to ditches that are over two metres deep and filled with um, the backfill material or the rubbish of people's past. And the same is true, you know, if you get a well-preserved Roman port, say at Bruff, um, you can have metres of archaeology in places, but as you move away from that centre, um, it can peter out. You know, and, and to to a relative shallowness. So, if you're working in a rural landscape, you know you can quite literally you know, just scrape off the topsoil and the subsoil, and within thirty, fifty centimeters, you're looking back into the deep past. It's that close to the ground surface. That's why we do a lot of development-led archaeology because if you're building a house, you want to go deep enough so you can put good um, foundations in or road want to be carved into the landscape and so on and so forth. So the archaeology tends to be in the upper surface, but that's not the same for everywhere. So urban archaeology tends to be treated different to rural archaeology because of that difference in depth. And I, I guess that brings us on to the blockhouse again because we went down to visit that site at the end of your season last year and you got quite deep there, didn't you? There's a few sort of couple metres in patches areas. So, and again, that's urban although it's sort of on the outskirts isn't it yeah it's a it's a it's an urban site that uh, the the story of the site means that there's a lot of infilling so the to go you know, we're going to go back in time from the present so the building was knocked down in the 1860s and then um handily for the archaeology and for the archaeologists and anybody involved in the project um that was reduced to ground level and then built on top of. So the ground level, the original, well, sorry, the early 19th century ground level sits about 70 centimetres underneath the present ground surface because on top of that there was light industry, railway tracks, warehouses, shipbuilding and things like that. But because it's a wet bit of ground, the people who built the South Blockhouse back in the 1540s and anybody who inherited it always had to fight against rising tides and water percolating up out the ground. So at one point in its life, um, the original ground surface, which is about a metre and a half below present ground surface, was raised by 70 centimetres. So you, what you're getting is an infilling of a big building um, which brings the ground level up and up and up as you try to fight the effects of the of the river hull and the Humber estuary. So that means that when we get to the site itself, you know, to get back to the Tudor levels, we, we have to drop down through time um, and space um, down to about a level of about a metre and a half below present ground surface. And then you find that the foundations for the building, the South Blockhouse is just one of these kind of, would have been a hulking fortress um, with walls that are four metres thick. To spread that weight, they cut down another metre and a half, nearly two metres into the landscape for the foundations. 
because the whole thing sits on a, in a on a big raft. So you know, it does mean that when you're sitting standing on the surface, you're looking down and thinking, oh yeah, Henrikian floor surface is a meter and a half below us, but the foundations can be another meter and a half below that. And I suppose it's just before we, as I get in really in depth with with what's going on at the blockhouse, it's probably worth putting it in a bit of context of what the blockhouse what the blockhouse is and it being part of a of a larger fortification that stretched along the side of the river hull. Yeah, and 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 I'll tell you what, I'm going to I go straight into history. So hopefully this 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 um, um, scratches that historian's itch for you as well. The whole reason why the blockhouse is there is because of Henry's or Henry the Eighth. I don't know him personally. You know, can I just call him Henry? Henry the Eighth's um, device castle um, program. So. With the Reformation and with Henry's um, um, cleft from the the Roman Church, um, the Roman Catholic Church, you know, bringing about his divorce of Catherine of Aragon, um, and Henry becoming the head of the new Church of England. So you've got this powerful man who's both the head of the royal state and the head of the religious state. Um, this obviously antagonizes um, the, the, the papacy, the Catholic Church, and the Holy Roman Empire, um, Charles V, um, and obviously compatriots in France. Um, and it means that he is paranoid of um, an invasion from Catholic Europe. He's at war on and off with Catholic France. Um, he's on at war with Scotland as well. Um, so he has these external threats, um, and so he needs to defend um, the the border. And of course, the, being an island, that border is is a maritime facing island, you know, maritime facing border. So you get a, a big suite of device castles around the south coast and the Thames estuary, and then you have this outlier um, that is Hull. Now, a lot of this comes about because, well, the the estuary is a, a is an easy gateway into the, the 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 eastern part of the north of England. If you can control the Humber estuary, you can control anything that's going up to York on the River Ouse. You can control, or at least keep an eye on anything that's going to go onto the River Trent, back down to Nottingham and into the East Midlands. You can keep an eye on anything that might be then going into West Yorkshire. If you hold the head of the Humber estuary, you can therefore control or see what's coming in out of of this huge part of the east of England, um, and Henry knows this. You know his his tacticians know this, and this is something that is repeated from the Roman period, repeated through the Norman conquest, and so on and so forth. So it's not just something that's peculiar to that Tudor period. So it represents a weak belly to a certain extent into the country, which needs to be defended. But it also represents a very important strategic um, position because Hull itself by the um, the middle of the 16th century, it's, it's become such a powerful port trading with Northern Europe that it has, a, has an economic, a great economic value as well. So Henry visits Hull twice in 1541. He visits Hull um, on his way north to York, um, and then coming back from York, he comes back and stays in Suffolk Palace, um, near where the Guildhall is situated now. Um, and that is where he makes the decision that the eastern defences of Hull, which lie open, got a city wall on the north 
the west and the south side, but the River Hull on the east side, and a completely open flank to the east of that, that needs to be defended. So he um, makes the command, makes the order for this device castle, which is a central castle um, with two large curtain walls, um, one running to the north, one running to the south, terminating on two blockhouses. You've got the north blockhouse, which is um, situated not far from where Northbridge is now, and the south blockhouse, which is situated not far from where the deep is now, although the deep is on reclaimed land. The south blockhouse would have been um, right on the, the, the confluence of the River Hull and the Humber estuary itself. So all this is driven by Henry's paranoia um, and worries about um, conflict with um, Catholic Europe, but also in the 1530s, where you have the Pilgrimage of Grace, um, he's worried about any kind of uprising um, in the in the Humber region because with the Pilgrimage of Grace you have um, this this rebellion from Lincolnshire spreading through East Yorkshire, the taking of Hull, um, which is more a protest because at the time um, the population's Catholic. They're not happy with the way the king is taking things. They're not happy about seeing the dissolution of their monasteries. Um, this, this not just philosophical taking apart of the religion, but they have the physical taking part of the religion. And tied with that, there's a cost of living crisis. So nothing's new under the sun. There's been a number of um, poor harvests. The price of grain has gone up, which obviously pushes up the price of other things. So you have both the upset population with what, is going on, what they're seeing in the landscape, but also the cost of living crisis. This leads to this pilgrimage of grace um, and the siege of Hull. So the construction of the defences on the east side of the river are both from a point of view of suppressing any external threat, but are, are situated also to suppress any internal threat as well. So that's why the blockhouse is where it is. I remember um, I, I did some archaeology taster days with with hfa last a month or two ago and how much the kids enjoyed hearing about the guns that were pointed towards the city um and how there's the sort of all the way around the blockhouse and the castle but a lot of them are heading yeah. in, in land yeah so. yeah 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 it's all about protecting the haven so the river and the strategic importance of that river and the river hull itself and the portage of the river. So the guns pointing back across the river are basically saying, if you try to take Hull, we can pound you from this side of the river. So it's a deterrent. It's kind of the ICBM of his age. You know, people will say deterrents work because they never have to be used. And funnily enough, the South Block is never used. Um, the So people, you know, anybody contained it would turn around and say, as a deterrent, it works. We never had to use it. But it's there to put people off doing what they might want to do. I think as well, taking people on, on tours around the old town, particularly people that have come from Hull, there's almost a sense of civic pride that, that Henry VIII felt the need to aim cannons at the city <laughs> as well. It's sort of like, yeah, we're, we're quite capable of upsetting you if we want to. So I suppose getting started on that blockhouse dig, then how does, that, how does it come about? What was the first initiative to go and start digging there? Well... Again, coming back to sort of um, something that Johnny said earlier about the longevity of projects, um, in the late 1990s, prior to the deep being constructed, there was a suite of archaeological evaluations in the landscape, 
basically, to understand that finite archaeological resource before it was destroyed in any way. So the evaluations of what is Sammy's point, what was Sammy's point, where the deep is situated, um, and where road infrastructure would go in, new developments, um, thoughts about East Bank development. There was an evaluation carried out in 1997. Part of that covered the South Blockhouse. It was already a scheduled ancient monument. We, everybody knows it's there, but nobody had a good idea about how the remains looked, how well in situ they were preserved. So that 1997 dig um, revealed that there was good levels of preservation. Come forward 20 years, and in 2017, Hull City of Culture, um, it was determined that there would be a small-scale evaluation, excavation on the site, um, as part of City of Culture, get people involved, volunteers, community involved in the dig as well, which again showed that there was a lot of potential. And that also brought in big numbers of visitors. So that was repeated um, in 2019, a little bit larger, um, more people coming to an open day, more work done on it, showing the amazingly well-preserved um, part of one of the bastions, um, and one of the gun positions and the foundations, a lot of visitors. So all of those interventions basically brought up to the point where it was obvious that there was a thirst to know more about this building from both uh, an archaeological sense, but also the, the, the public's sort of eager thirst um, to know more about it. COVID comes along, knocks everybody back a few years. Um, I, you know, It's a story that I'm not going to repeat. Everybody knows it. Um, and then where it brings us in to in 2021, um, we um, were lucky, that's we as in Hull City Council, were lucky to secure um, funding support from National Highways um, to go back and visit the, the site um, with support from Historic England as well because they are the, the keepers of that scheduled ancient monument. They are the ones that deal with consent applications. Um, and our design, which again, going back to something that we started with, which is based on a brief set by Humber Archaeological Partnership, so they were there at the beginning setting the brief that we had to match, um, asking for a number of criteria. One of the things at the heart of this was public engagement, community archaeology, public benefit. So we designed a project that allowed about um, not quite 50% of the, the building to be opened up with a smaller key piece excavation into certain aspects of it um, over 11 weeks over the summer of 2022 to try and get as many people. So people with no previous archaeological experience from Hull and the su surrounding satellite towns and ministries to get come along and get involved in it. So that's that longevity. So that brings us up to where we were at the start of the project. I find it really interesting, the community engagement side of it, because it, it's something that I really care about in, in what I do and, and the project that I work with in Bruff, we, we're big on community engagement mm -hmm. there. Yeah. But it's not as common as I think I would expect it to be in archaeology, especially with these these client-led sort of developments and things. Um, but HFA seem to be quite keen on it almost, um, and especially with this project, obviously with its ties to other funding bodies. Um, so I just sort of wondered if you could tell us a bit about how that process came to be because 
it's it's something that I was told in the first lecture I went to is that anyone can be an archaeologist, anyone can have a valid comment on archaeological understanding. Yeah. But just how that goes from what is a, a very important excavation to having that scope to allow people to just come in and have a go and, and how that happens. Yeah, it, it's a, that's a very good question. And, you know, there are sort of a, a complicated mix of answers in there. I think the first simple answer is that all archaeologists, all historians are storytellers. So it's all about telling a story. The minute you go into interpretation, you're basically saying, we don't know all the facts. Um, so we, with the best of our knowledge, best of the historical knowledge and the archaeological knowledge, that information that we retrieve from sites over decades of work, we are going to use that to tell the story of the site. It's that interpretive detail. If you accept that we are storytellers with um, a good amount of knowledge behind us, then we can say anybody can be a storyteller. Um, and how do we tell those stories? So I think that's the next step there is saying anybody can be an archaeologist. Um, it's what type of archaeologist you want to be, how do you determine that archaeologist, and what type of archaeological work you want to do. Anybody, you know, the, the past is universal. It's there for everybody. It's there for anybody who has spent one day living in Hull to somebody who's grown up and spent their whole life living in Hull. The minute you're in Hull, Hull is your place, you know, if you, if you set your roots down here. So that is our sort of background philosophy in the sense of, like, that's why we want to get people involved in the past, because it's everybody's past. It's not the past of an academic. It's not the past of a professional. It's not the past of somebody who works in... Um, archaeology or historical research is everybody's past we want to share it that's a good thing because it means that you gather more support as well yeah um, <clears throat> there are projects that are client-led where it's not necessarily appropriate to um, open it up to public benefit that could be because of time constraints it could be because of health and safety constraints it could be because of a number of different ties that mean pieces of work happen without specific, say, on-site public benefit. But public benefit can come later with the production of um, reports, um, doing podcasts, um, doing blogs, um, you know, doing lots of kind of social media dissemination, um, public talks and things like that. The, the public benefit you know, element doesn't just have to happen at the dig. But we know, and you know, a lot of my friends and colleagues know that, you know, to really capture people's imagination, if you put them in a trench and you put them on a surface that has been buried for 500 years and say to them, you're the first person to stand on that for 500 years, and then recover artifacts and say, you're the first person to touch that artifact since the last person who dropped it happened to be living in the reign of Henry VIII. You know, that's a great way of um, recovering people's thirst um, and desire for the past. You know, we, at South Blockhouse, I'm going to digress for a second, um, our community team, well, we've got over 120 volunteers come and work over the project who, who provided over 4,500 hours to the project over those 11 weeks. They were the ones that made the discoveries. So a little cache of probably Civil War um, period, so mid-17th century um, lead shot from, for, lead, uh, for muskets, was recovered by um, a team in the, the community. And they're recovering these lead shots, and they have not been touched the, since whoever it was that put them 
down on the surface of the ground, possibly in a small bag that had eventually rotted away. Um, they were the first person to pick these up since somebody had put them down in the Civil War. That's a great connection to the past, that physical connection. Um, and and then from there, you can spin off in all sorts of other directions. So that's, you know, that's our, you know, that's where we come from. And I think, you know, as a, as a representative of Hull City Council, so keep in mind that we are a local government um, body, um, we want to make sure that the past is as democratic as possible. So that's that's what drives us. Yeah, we, we always find that it's the volunteers that find the nice coins on our site. It's uh, I've never found a coin there, but some of the some of the sixteen year olds have found tons. <laughs> um, so I guess sort of going on to that that community and that sort of legacy aspect. What is the the future now? Is is there going to be another dig, or is it more creating these legacy projects? There won't be another dig. Um, I think we have recovered enough information from the site. Um, to cover it over um, and not go back to it. Because we have to remember, coming back to that very early point, that it's a finite archaeological resource. If we dig it up, we're not leaving anything there for future generations. And when we're talking about future generations, I'm not just talking about my kids, or even eventually, hopefully, no pressure on my kids, grandkids. Um, we're talking about future generations, say, a century down the line. If they have, and hopefully they will have, a lot better technology than we do, there is that finite archaeological resource still in the ground for them to investigate and for them to engage the people of Hull in a century's time with that site. Um, so we have done what we would like to do um, to gather enough information to tell a good story um, and to bring enough interpretive detail. What will happen to the site is that it will be landscaped and the shape of the South Blockhouse will be picked out There'll be above ground structures, so people will be able to see how thick the walls are, where um, gun positions were located, where the entrance was, the shape of the building, the information there, both digital and traditional, um, and it will be a place to visit. It'll be a place where you can walk from the Hull and East Riding Museum, where you can see Henry's gun, um, across the river, across Scale Lane Bridge, down to this site, and then say continue your journey over to Humber Street and back around in a lovely circular tour. Um, where we, we want to bring the story of Hull's military aspect, which is a good site to do it on, um, out on that site. So one of the legacies will be an open-air visitor attraction. Um, and the other things that we're doing is making sure that um, there are other imaginative spin-offs. So we have worked with... Um, there are traditional groups who will get involved with archaeology and heritage. Um, people who can be tend to be sort of time rich, um, well off from a monetary value point of view, um, and they'll get involved. But we want to make sure that we actively reach out to other groups. So we've had asylum seekers down to the site to talk about storytelling, um, and refugees down to the site. We've put a play on um, when we were open last year. Um, which was a, a little skit where we've got Henry VIII and a brick builder, a brick maker, um, having a bit of a tete-a-tete, a head-to-head, -tete, -head, um, about where he's taking the country and how this brick builder feels about it. Um, but the brick builder, the brick maker, is still going to take the king's coin, 
but is not entirely happy with what they're saying. So, you know, dealing with those kind of moments of friction in a society, to talk about that, we've had young people um, who are going through, say, a youth training schemes or have left school and haven't attained what they wanted. It could be because of COVID or mental health issues. Get them involved in the site. Get them involved in that process of getting your hands on the past. Um, we have worked with military veterans, um, again, who have done art projects with us. And then we've done things like uh, make a 16-bit style um, role-playing game. Um, so it's like a Japanese RPG style thing. So think um, um, Zelda, um, Link's Awakening, uh, Link to the Past sort of things. Some obscure um, things there for, for non-gamers to go and Google. Um, <clears throat> and so we've produced that, um, working with the Goodwin Charitable Trust. And they have also produced a tabletop um, um, print and play um, dice role-playing game, all based around the history of the South Lock House, different ways to tell stories. And the, the role-playing game, the computer game, which is called Time Fort 1555, so it takes place, one of the levels takes place just after 10 years of the, the structure being built, um, in a period where the finances of it are being given back to the city um, and there's a three part YouTube short films that lead into this time travel um, role playing game so we're using time travel as the, as the way into the different layers of time that is represented so you know we want to carry on doing those kind of things where you know if, if we can do soundscapes or pieces of music that try to capture some of the essence of the site if we can do um, you know, if we were, if we were to do a, a South Blockhouse Bake Off, that would be great. I've always thought of doing like um, you know, you get these Civil War sconces, and um, but you could do them in, in in a scone, so you could have a scone sconce, um, that kind of thing. We could, you know, uh, you know, we we already know that there's a musical called Six about Henry's wives, so there's no, no reason why you know doing something musical about an archaeological site seems off the cuff and a bit weird because people are already doing it and making very good money and making good um, entertainment out of this. So part of that is to make sure that we use our imaginations to tell stories of the past and reach out to different groups. You know, so that could be you know, the, the, the initial launch of the role-playing game was carried out um, in Bad Wolf on Whitefriar Gate. Again, that's not necessarily a traditional audience that would come to an archaeological site, but we want to be using the past and our knowledge to try and engage with as many people across society as possible. And I think that it's it's great, and it reflects even the way the way that so many different people take different things from that site as well. Because I think I was I enjoyed visiting the site a, a few times a few times last year with with a few different groups, and you know it, it was it was great to hear what each individual group was picking out of the site yeah. that was yeah. particularly interesting. I mean, I can remember always saying one of my favourite things that I saw on on the ground that was at the south end where you had, you meant from sort of fortification wall to then a strip of red bricks that just said danger on them because it was yeah. from, from the shipyard. Yeah. I just think it's it's such a wonderful snapshot of so much that's been going on just at that single site that it allowed so many different avenues into history yeah and i think that's that reflects a bit what you're saying what you're yeah. saying there yeah it's a palimpsest of time you know um it's time overwriting time overwriting time 
um, we've been working with a, um, a, a fantastic talent to create an augmented reality and virtual reality version of the South Block House. And using computer skills, so he, he's, a, he's from, a, uh, from a gaming background, so he has you know, skills in Unreal Engine and things like that. Um, and then working with us, you know, he's been constructing this. Um, and we're going to have it skinned so it looks more like uh, um, Holler's famous map of 1640. You know, go ahead and Google it. You'll see what it looks like. Um, we're going to make it so it looks more like that. So it almost looks like you've just taken the South Blockhouse out of um, Holler's map. And you can now walk around it in, a, in an AR or VR um, setup. As he, as this, um, um, our our graphics whiz has been working through this we've been looking at photos and he, he's asking questions about does that relate to that and does that relate to that and how does this size work with that wall that I can see there and one of the interesting things that we've had to work through is that when archaeologists look at a photograph of an archaeological site we are you're not seeing everything that's contemporary um, so you have to be skilled in really quite clever sort of data gymnastics where you're looking at a photograph and you have to think that wall is 16th century, but that wall is 17th century, and that wall's 18th, and that wall's 19th. So you have to start unseeing things, um, and so um, we've worked through sort of the skills of when you look at a photograph, how you think about. I'm looking at something that may be contemporary in the in the present, in the sense that we see it all at the same time, but knowing that somebody in the past would never have seen that because things would have been blocked off, or buried, or disappeared, and the archaeologist. Or the community team have recovered them, and and but they, you're seeing something from the 16th century at the same time as say something from the mid 19th century. So you know it's 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 a skill that we can share with people, and it's something that we can then bring into say how we imagine the past and how we show things say in a virtual reality um, setting. So um, it's been an it's been an interesting process to even take that danger. That you that you said you liked that and um, those tiles with danger on it, which covering an electricity cable from the early twentieth century, but they are cut through something that was laid down four hundred years earlier. You know, it's 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 getting those skills to think about how we think about the past in a very complicated way. It's a really yeah good point about archaeologists looking at the floor and sort of seeing all the different because we have it in, in Bruff where we've got sort of very early Roman occupation and then third century Roman occupation and it looks like they should all be at the same time because they all sort of feed into one another but trying to explain the 300 years between them when you're trying to do that based off coinage and pottery that isn't there anymore because it's been taken away and looked at is is really difficult and um, I think it's it's really rewarding seeing volunteers that have that have come on site and are very people from around Hull are very self-deprecating and they regard themselves as not very good at it. And then suddenly within like a week or two, they are able to pick out all these different features and things. Uh, and especially when you sort of get more ephemeral and the earlier you go with archaeology and the, you know, yeah. get on, get on as you say, a prehistoric site that's different colored ditch cuts on a field that you can't quite tell are there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, I think that's sort of all, all we've got to talk about today, unless there's anything else you'd like to say. I'm just going to pick up on two things you said. Um, um, the first thing is that self-deprecating element. Um, it's something I found. It's interesting. Sort of, you know, 
I spent eight years living in Liverpool, eight in Manchester, seven in York, and you know I've now spent a couple of years, about two and a half years in Hull. And yeah, that self-deprecating thing is definitely here in a way that I haven't really experienced it um, in other big Victorian or post-industrial cities. Um, but I constantly think that that the people Hull um, and the satellite towns and villages, the area itself, shouldn't because the archaeology hull is just as good, actually. Put York aside, the archaeology hull is, I would say, better than a lot of the other um, big northern um, industrial cities. Not to denigrate those, I, I love Manchester and Liverpool. Um, but, it's, you know, I was saying, like, Hull is an amazing place, has amazing stories, has amazing archaeology and heritage and history. Um, and so, you know, we should just embrace that. And actually, one of the things... Only this week we've been shortlisted for an Archaeology Achievement Award. So this is a, a, a national award run by the Council for British Archaeology in engagement and participation. It's all this public benefit um, that we've been doing. We have, you know, we show that we can do as well here as anywhere else in the UK. And I suppose if people are listening to this and have maybe had that sort of self-deprecating, I can't, I don't, th- I don't think it's for me, but now want to learn more about HFA and, and, and what's going on. Where can they where can they find that information? Well, I think, you know, get our email address, our general inquiries email address from our website. You know, if you just Google HFA, it'll take you into the website. You'll see some information. You'll get our general inquiries email address. Send us an email. Um, and we might not have any opportunities at the moment, but... We'll we'll keep your your information, and so that when there are even things like um, you know we I've carried out public walks and talks for the Heritage Open Days. I've got another one coming up next week, walking out to Bransome Castle. You know, we'll let people know about that, so they can come on our walks. They can um, find out about lectures that we might be putting on. You know, we we'll tell people about say the computer games or whatever we'll be doing. There are lots of ways to engage, and you know. The best way to do that is, you know, is basically send us an email. So we've got your email address, and then we can keep in contact with you that way. Um, the last thing, which is a funny um, little aside um, about time, um, we archaeologists have a terrible tendency to make the past sound like it happens in five minutes. So one of the one of the most frustrating things I get sometimes is when someone says, "Oh, it happened in the Bronze Age," but the Bronze Age happens from about 2,500 BC to around about 800, 750 BC. So that period of time is, what, let's call it 1,750 years. That's not something that just happens in five minutes. So I would say the next time anybody hears an archaeologist say, oh, it happened in the Bronze Age, or it happened in the Neolithic, or it happened in the Roman period. I mean, the Roman period itself is a good, what, you know, nearly 400 years. Um, ask them when exactly they mean in that period of time. You know, to, to, you know, it's always a challenge to get people to think a bit more succinctly about time and not just think of it as a throwaway thing where, yeah, you know, a thousand, a thousand years and five minutes. So, yeah, that would, be, that would be my challenge to all the listeners. It's like the next time you find an archaeologist talking about, oh, in the Roman period, just say, when exactly do you mean? And I'll leave it at that. I think I'm going to get a lot more questions on campus in the next few weeks. Um, yeah, thank you very much, Peter. Uh, good luck with the awards. I hope, I hope you win. You. It's thank a really you. good project. I, I didn't realise about all the video games and, and board games and things. It's really, really impressive. A lot of, a lot of effort's gone into it. 
Um, but yeah, thank you very much for your time. Um, and thank you all for listening and see you on the next episode.